We'd like to give a warm welcome to our guest speaker for the next two weeks. So why don't you just give a warm welcome to John Wayne. Wayne. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, good morning. It's a real pleasure to be with you here this morning and to worship together and to take a look into God's Word. Uh, it's, it's funny, I used to, growing up, so I'm, my name is Jonathan Wayne, and my parents named me Jonathan on purpose. I have an older brother, David, uh, theme going on there. Uh, but growing up, once I hit grade nine, I said, now nah, I want to be John. And uh, I wasn't thinking I wanted to be like the cowboy, uh, but I just wanted a shorter name. And uh, so I spent most of high school and college uh, getting every sort of John Wayne joke uh, thrown at me every time people mention my name. Uh, and I uh, had an interesting, in, in high school, a friend started calling me Batman, and I could not figure out why he was calling me Batman. I finally asked him, he said, well, John Wayne, Batman. I'm like, no, Bruce Wayne is Batman. <laughs> <clears throat> so, uh, and, and then for the last decade or so, because, you know, people's interest in John Wayne movies, because some of you are sitting here going, I don't even have a clue who John Wayne is, but uh, people's interest kind of waned. I, I was at near the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, just this uh, semester, as I was uh, beginning uh, one of the classes I teach at Concordia, uh, my TA came up, and he's like, oh, you should make a Superman joke. And I was like, a Superman joke? I, why would I make a Superman joke? Bruce Wayne, Superman. I'm like, you can't even get that part right. <laughs> so anyways, it's, it's, uh, it's been my lifelong struggle. Uh, so what we're going to talk about the next couple of weeks here uh, is contained in the title, Love, uh, the Moral of God's Story. And uh, David and I had chatted a bit uh, about uh, coming to speak and what we might talk about. And I sent him an email, said, well, I'll do something on ethics. And he's like, it's rather broad, John. Could you narrow that a bit? Uh, so we, uh, we narrowed down to talk about uh, love. And uh, ethics is, is uh, my... Uh, area of study. Uh, so I'm an a instructor at uh, Concordia. Uh, I've been uh, working in uh, the uh, university for the last uh, number of, about 10 years. I moved here to do a PhD at McGill from Western Canada, and uh, then I've been uh, working and teaching since then. Uh, and ethics is, is my, my interest. Uh, prior to this part of my life, I was a youth pastor for about 10 years in the lower mainland of British Columbia. And uh, then we moved our three older kids out here, Cassia, Carter, and Sydney, who are here with us today. Uh, Sophia came uh, in womb, so she was born uh, here in Quebec in uh, 2007. Why didn't you cheer, Soph? That's, okay. Anyways, uh, so morality is something I'm very interested in, uh, in terms of just what I do professionally. Uh, when I say the moral of God's story, that probably brings to mind the idea of, of lessons that we learn. We hear a story... When we say, what's the moral of the story? Uh, the question is, well, what's the lesson that we learn from it? Uh, but this isn't just about, well, what's the lesson we get from, from God's story? The word moral or morality is about human action. It's about the rightness and the wrongness of human action. And so when we talk about love as being the moral of God's story, it's really about talking about what does it mean for Christians to act well, to live well. And love is at the heart of what that means. And that's what we want to, uh, to discuss and, uh, and get to uh, today. So uh, when we talk about uh, love as the moral of God's story, uh, there's, there's two things I really want to look at. This week is talking about God as the author of love. Uh, God is, is the one who gives this word meaning. 
Next week, we want to talk more specifically about neighbor love, although we'll, we'll get there uh, towards the, the end of our discussion today. So love is the moral of God's story. Uh, in our family, uh, the last couple of weeks in particular, Boggle has been uh, a big game. Uh, Sophia, uh, our youngest, is, is very interested in playing, so after school, she wants to get together and play Boggle. Uh, some of you are playing already right now. Sophia, in her mind, thinks she's beating you. So, uh, but what she does, she gets it set up. If you're not familiar with the game, you, know, you shake the dice, you uh, set the timer, and then you try to see how many words you can get out of this uh, square of, of letters in the two minutes that you have. Uh, and Sophia is so kind. Uh, every time we go to play, she, she gets the game set up. I don't even have to do help with setting up anything. She gets it set up. She puts out sheets. She even labels the sheets. So it'll say Sophia on her sheet. It'll say the loser on my sheet. Uh, it's very kind of her. But uh, as we play the game, you know, after the two minutes, then we go through our list of words that we've come up with. And uh, inevitably, every time, there is a, a fight, an argument. Okay? Usually it's her telling me, here's a word, and me saying, what's the meaning of that word? And her just kind of looking at me and smiling. <laughs> and I said, well, can you use that word in a sentence? And then she uses it in some kind of sentence that I can't understand. Uh, right? And it's this wrestling, and if you've played Scrabble or any of these other word games, there's usually this, this wrestling over what do these words mean? How do we understand these words? And that's something that we face in life, especially in a society where words get appropriated for, for different kinds of meanings all the time. And religions face this as well. Uh, and I'm going to put two words on the screen here that you uh, are probably familiar with, karma and jihad. Now, these words, as soon as we hear them, we have some sense of meaning behind them, right? Karma. Typically, we think, or popularly, we think, oh, what goes around comes around, right? That's the idea that we get in our culture. But in Buddhism or in Hinduism, where this is a term that's used, really it's, it's related to action, and it's related to your position in this life, right? In a, in a framework of reincarnation, karma means you're in the place that your actions merit, okay? And in your next life, you'll be in the place that your actions merit from the previous one, right? It's a, it's a different meaning than what we typically think of, Okay? Uh, and it's a word that I'm sure for, uh, for people in Eastern religious traditions that they would, you know, kind of probably tweak out a little bit as they hear uh, people using it popularly. Jihad is a, is a word that comes really loaded, right, with all sorts of images in our mind, all sorts of ideas. Uh, I know when I first started hearing the word in the, in the 80s, the early 90s, uh, the term holy war was connected to it. Now we just think violent extremism or we think terrorism and we think horrific acts. But the word jihad, as it's used in the Quran, has to do with spiritual struggle. So for many, I would argue for most Muslims, jihad is a spiritual term. And it probably relates most closely for us to when we read Paul in 2 Timothy 4 verse 7 talk about fighting the good fight, finishing the race. For most Muslims, that's what jihad is. It's this religious struggle. But it's been co-opted by terrorists, by psychopaths. It's been uh, co-opted by the media. And so they're struggling, facing, you know, every day, here's this term that means something religiously to them, but it's being thrown in their face every day as something else and has come to mean something else in, in different situations. What argued that love is a Christian equivalent to this, that love has come to mean something in our society 
and that we have a struggle against this meaning. And we need to struggle against this meaning. Uh, the reason it's important for me as someone who's interested in ethics and morality to talk about love, a part of it is to reclaim what this word means, and not what it means to me or what it means to us, but because this word has an authorship. It has a history. It has a root. It has a foundation. And that foundation is God. So when we think about love in our, in our culture, uh, the popular usage of love uh, has to do with this idea of, uh, mean, uh, and we'll go maybe to the next slide here, uh, meaning whatever it can mean as long as it meets two criteria. Okay? So we'd say, well, love, it, it really has no definition. right? People are, are fine. It can mean just about anything, but it has to mean these two things. One, it's got to refer to intense feelings. Okay? And here's where it gets attached to uh, romantic relationships, uh, but not only there. I read philosophers who attach it to parent-child relationships. What is love? It's the intensity of that relationship. When that intensity is gone, well, why, you know, what value is there in that relationship then? So it needs to mean this feeling of intense, uh, this intense feeling, and generally it's an intense feeling of pleasure of some kind. Okay? So suffering then is invalidated and it's rejected. Okay, and that's, that's a very general sense of what does love mean in our culture. Uh, we could find all sorts of different definitions we might look at. But here's a general sense of it can mean really anything you want it to mean as long as it refers to intense feelings and as long as it rejects any kind of suffering. Well, that's a problem in terms of Christianity. Uh, and it poses a problem for Christianity. Or Christianity poses a problem for that idea of love. Uh, why? Well, one, love has a distinct and definite theological meaning, one that we're going to come to in a few moments, right? One that's gathered around this term uh, agape and one that's rooted in the nature of God himself. But second, suffering is a part of life and of love in this world. As Christians, I don't think we have a biblical or a theological basis to join into a movement that says we're going to eradicate suffering from the experience of life in this world. Suffering is a part of life in this world. It's a part of journeying to that day when we will be revealed as God's children in the return of Christ and when suffering will then no more be a part of our lives. But to say that we're going to eradicate suffering in this world, we can struggle against it, and we should. We should comfort. We should love. But the idea that suffering just won't exist has no rooting or grounding uh, in, in Scripture. So what do we do? Well, uh, to put this in terms of the two parts that we'll talk about these next weeks, this week is to say love is, is God's word. Okay? And I, I don't mean that in a metaphorical or a wordsmithy sort of way. I mean it literally. It, it's his word. It is a word that is rooted and grounded in God, that we can't understand anything about love if we don't understand God as the source of love, as God, if we don't understand God as love. And then next week, we're going to talk about living out the responsibility of being God's people, this God who is love. So uh, today, let's start by looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 4. Sorry? 1 John 4. Corinthians just rolls off the tongue so well. The grounding passage uh, to look at, and it's, it's one you may be very familiar with, is, is 1 John 4, uh, verses 7 to 12. 
but we're not going to move through it so much uh, expositionally. In some ways we will today, but we're also going to just let it ground us. And uh, today we're going to talk about four different ways of understanding God as the author of love. But it reads here uh, in 1 John 4, starting at verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how we know God, sorry, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Really, verses 7 to 10 are, are the primary basis for this week. But I'll read through verses 11 and 12, which is going to get us more into the idea of neighbor love. And neighbor love, not just in terms of evangelism or our social relations outside the church, but also the neighbor love of our close relations within the church. Here says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Let let that last verse kind of rest and sink in as you look ahead to sharing communion together, right? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So on to the first uh, point that we want to make today. Uh, Love is God's word, okay? And verses 7 and 8 in 1 John 4 really ground us in that. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Right? We're all used to answering the question, where are you from? Uh, for some of us, it's, it's a short answer. Right? You might have been born and raised on the island of Montreal, and, and end of story. Uh, for some of you, maybe you are born here, you've gone different places, so that becomes a part of your story. Uh, in our family, uh, you know, Tanya I was born and raised in the lower mainland of British Columbia. Uh, I was born and raised in the thriving metropolis of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Uh, moved out to uh, BC, and then we came here together with our family uh, in 2007. So, so this forms a part of our story. Where are you from? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it gets a little bit more complicated, not to mention the whole pride aspect, right? I mean, Tanya, do not ask her about British Columbia, please. Unless you've got half an hour to talk about mountains and ocean and, and things, right? Now, Saskatchewan, our humility really goes before us. Uh, so... Uh, you know, and probably most of you are misinformed or ill-informed. So if you want to talk about Saskatchewan, you can come talk to me about that, right? But that's a part of it, right? We've got these, you know, this pride of, of where we're from, uh, right? And it means something to us, right? I don't know how you think of yourself in terms of that question. When I think of myself in terms of that question, I haven't lived in Saskatchewan for 25 years, but I'm a prairie kid. That's how I think of myself. That's how I imagine myself. That's how I understand myself. Well, we need to understand love as having roots, as having a beginning, a source. And we need to understand even just the way words work. Right? The word we use, love in English, is a symbol for something. Whether we called it grain or whether we called it uh, you know, burger, right? that, that word would come to mean something that lies underneath it. We use the word love, but what defines that word is God. So we see here, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. And it's important that we, that we recognize 
God as this source. And, and uh, you may be very familiar with 1 John 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And the rendering in English can be a problem. Because actually it, it feeds right into the way that we think about love in our life and in society. And that is we think of it as an exchange. Right? We think, well, God loved us, and he loved us first, so I should love him back. But that's not really what what's the point is here. Okay? And, and the, the, uh, I had a, a Greek teacher when I was in seminary who really wanted to drive this home. Here's this little tiny verse, but he wanted to make a real meal of this. And the important point he drove across is it's not really translated well to say we love because God first loved us. It's translated well to say we love because God is the first lover. We love because he is the source of love. Right? And that matches very well with what we read in 1 John 4, 7-12. to right? That God is love. He is the source of love. He is, as I use the term, the author of love. We don't love simply to complete some kind of exchange. There certainly is a response and a responsibility on our part. But when it comes to love and loving, we love because he is love. He is the first lover. It is his pattern that sets uh, what love means and what love is. Okay. Now, uh, the term we have here is uh, probably very familiar if you've been to church. Uh, it's the word agape, uh, and I, I give you the, the Greek rendering uh, here uh, in the image. But here, too, we've got to talk, what does this mean? And we may think of it as uh, agape, as sacrificial love, the idea I'm, I'm giving something up. Uh, that may not be helpful in terms of thinking through sacrifice and trying to understand what that means. Uh, Donald Blush talks about love as denying oneself for the good of one's neighbor. So he's trying to work through this term as he reads it in the New Testament and, and recognize there's this denial that matters here, but it's a denial that has the other in mind. Okay? We also come to the... the uh, Passage in Matthew 22, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, and uh, Don Browning talks about this as loving one's neighbor with the same seriousness that one loves oneself. Right? We know, uh, you know intuitively, in a sense, what it means to love ourselves. Okay? Maybe sometimes. Maybe we get a little bit off kilter on that uh, misunderstanding uh, because of you know, the corruption of sin in our lives, because of the culture around us. But at the base of loving oneself is this idea of, you know, we, we hope that things go well, right? I'm not standing here hoping I'm just going to fall off the end of this stage, right? Uh, I hope that this goes relatively well, that uh, I communicate, that you understand. I, I don't have this desire to make an a absolute fool of myself this morning, right? I hope that things go well. Do we hope that for others, right? Do we care about that for others? Furthermore, are we willing to deny ourselves so that things go well for others? C.S. Lewis uh, puts it uh, even in, in reverse. Uh, you know, when it comes to loving your enemy, he says, well, a sure sign that you don't love your enemy is that when you hear something about them that is, you know, bad, okay, and you let that settle for a bit, then later on you hear, well, it wasn't quite that bad. C.S. Lewis says, well, a sure sign you don't love them is that you, you, know, you really pine for the, the worst thing that you heard. You really wish that was true. 
right? You'd rather that they were as bad as you thought they were. Agape is this sacrificial love. It's denying oneself for the good of one's neighbor. It's taking that love of neighbor as seriously as you take love of self. But I think Karl Barth helps us with this uh, as well. In his, uh, we'll take you know his church dogmatics takes up about this much room on the uh, bookshelf in the library, but we'll we'll narrow it down to just a few lines. He says, "An agape love, one gives himself to another with no expectation of a return, in pure venture." Right? It's it's getting rid of this idea of exchange. It's saying, "Look, I'm I'm going to love you regardless of what you've done for me." I'm going to love you regardless of anything you could do for me in the future. I'm going to love you regardless of anything negative that you mean in my life. I'm going to love you as pure venture. I have no idea what's going to return to me. And it doesn't matter what is going to return to me. Parents of teenagers. <laughs> no offense to you know, any of the three or four that live in my house. Right? There's this idea of Love, and, and sometimes we don't see a return on it. Okay? Guess what? They're thinking the same thing. I know, they told me. Okay? Right? We, we struggle in these human relationships of, well, what am I getting in return? We're, we're so ingrained in this capitalistic mindset, market-driven mindset, that when I give something, something's got to come back. We expect that. This is a counter-cultural love. This isn't love that's rooted in my human will. This is a love that's rooted and grounded in a God who loves us as pure venture. Who loves us not because of what we can do for him. Who loves us not because of what we will do for him. He just loves us. How transforming would that be in my family if I could love like that? If my kids could say, hey, I recognize that. No comments, okay? Right, if they could recognize that love in me and in ordinary things, right? Not in some heroic form, but just in the ordinary, mundane, everyday little things that they would see that love in me. I can tell you right now, they should be searching their minds going, okay, maybe it hasn't been a good week for dad, right? This, I confess to you, I have to work on. I suspect I'm not alone. Love comes from God, and it's this kind of love. Second, love always has been God's word. Love is not a New Testament invention. Right? It's not that God got to you know, that point in history that we call the first century, and it said, Man, things have not been going well with the way that I've approached. So let's shift. Let's try this love thing. This sounds great. Agape. The Greeks taught me this word. I can, right? It's not new. It's not an invention that is coming. Love is something that we see the Israelites referring to. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 36, Your love, Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. How, pr- how priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Right? Here's this expression of God's love. Jeremiah the prophet, right, speaking to and for uh, Israel, says, The Lord appeared to us in the past, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. 
What does it mean to say God's love is everlasting? I I think we need to root and ground this idea that his love is, again, not a New Testament invention. It's not even an Old Testament invention. It's rooted and grounded in who God is. And so if we look at Ephesians uh, 1, verses 3 to 6, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And how did he do all this? In love, in agape. He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Right? The end of verse 4, just before uh, verse 5, uh, in, the, in the Greek New Testament, it's in agape. Right? This is the love that God is, is uh, giving. This is this venture love. This is this self-denying type of love. And our whole being as his people is rooted in this. Now we run into uh, a couple of issues with this. One is... If, if love isn't just a New Testament or an Old Testament invention, where is it grounded? Okay, and, and here I'm just going to give a few thoughts that you may have to let ruminate a bit further and, and maybe even discuss further. But one is, it's, it's rooted in God's nature as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? A, a lot of times we try to, you know, people mention the Trinity and we're like, well, okay, the word isn't in the Bible. We try to explain it. We try to teach it. Some people might try to use like an egg to try to describe the Trinity. Not helpful. Uh, where do we come to describe it? it it's actually uh, an a, a orthodox uh, theologian named John Zizioulis who talks about God as being in communion. So that when we understand who God is, the best way to describe God and describe God as three persons in one is to talk about love. It's to talk about the love of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's maybe one of the reasons why we come to the first problem in Scripture. If you're starting in Genesis and you're reading along, the first problem you come to isn't sin. It's that when Adam's created, he's alone. Well, how can Adam, if he is to reflect the image of God, do that by himself? He cannot. We need to understand God as eternal love. But another problem we come to is the issue of violence. And and we won't uh, be sidetracked by this this for too long. Uh, But uh, the next image is uh, is uh, uh, an artist's rendering of the fall of Jericho. And uh, one of these places where we go, well... You know, you have a God of love in the New Testament. You've got a God of, of anger and violence in the Old Testament. How do you hold these two things together? Uh, and I'm not trying to say this is an easy thing to resolve. But one way we do need to understand violence in the Old Testament, at least one issue you need to work through, is understanding God's covenant faithfulness to Israel. God's covenant faithfulness to a people who really, really, really were not good at covenant faithfulness. Right? So bad that when uh, you come to Hosea and the prophets, right, in order to, uh, you know, to represent what's happened between God and his people, Hosea marries a prostitute. Right? So God has this covenant relationship with Israel. A covenant has only one place to go. 
It can, it can have trouble, and it did in the Old Testament, but it can't be broken. It can only lead to fulfillment. And if it doesn't, then God's not who he said he is. So a covenant has one direction to go. And God is guiding this weak and broken covenant people. We read the narrative throughout the Old Testament. And Walter Brueggemann talks about this, and he says one way we need to understand God's love for Israel and understand what's happening with violence in the Old Testament is to understand the, uh, you know, the she-bear-like protection that he has for his covenant people. Nothing will come between God and the fulfillment of this covenant and the carrying of this covenant people. Uh, I watched a video a few weeks ago uh, online. Somebody posted on social media, and it showed, uh, I guess there's some tension between male black bears and brown bears. And uh, so there's a black bear that was tracking this uh, mother brown bear and her cubs, and uh, its desire was to attack the cubs and to eat them. I'm, I'm, this is not my area of life. I'm just going with, with, with what happened. What I saw in the video was that mama bear turned around, and that black bear ran up a tree as fast as he could. Okay? And that mama bear went up that tree. She shook that tree. She broke branches off trying to make that bear fall out of that tree. Right? Don't mess with my cubs. <laughs> right? If you do, you're going to wish you hadn't. Okay? If I was that black bear, I would have just died and fallen to the ground. It would have been over. It's a really terrifying video. <laughs> okay? but, but we need to understand God in this covenant relationship with Israel, that he will see Israel through. And why are we surprised by that as Christians? When we see words like predestination at different points in Scripture, there's, there's a lot of debates and arguments about them, but one thing we know that predestination means, it means that God will see us through to the end. That when God makes his promises to us, they're not false, they're not weak, they will see us through. So I don't think that answers every question about violence in the Old Testament. But I think it points us in a direction. You've got to realize the God of love is the God of history. And he's testified to in the Old Testament and he's testified to in the New Testament. And where we see violence, we do need to understand it still in light of his love. The third point I want to make is this. Separation from God is separation from love. Okay, there's this inescapable biblical assertion that God is love. Okay? So what does this mean for judgments that we make about love? In other words, how do we discern whether something is loving or not? So we see here in 1 John 4, 7, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not does not, uh, does not love, does not know God, because God is love. Now, if God is the author of love, we need to recognize well, what happens when we have some distance from God. So if, if we love God, we still have to struggle through the fact that we live in a world marked by sin, that we exist in bodies that are corrupted by sin, that we're struggling against desires where sin desires to master us, but through the Spirit, we struggle against that. Okay? So we don't see love perfectly in our own lives, in our own relationships. Well, what happens when love moves further away from God? Those who maybe have grown distant from him. Those who have no interest in God. Those who think God really is a moral monster. 
those who don't think there is a God at all. What happens? Well, it's a little bit like making mixtapes in the 80s, right? Uh, now, when CDs came out, it was great. You could get a much clearer, crisper uh, sound. It still wasn't the CD quality. It still wasn't the original quality. But, you know, it, it wasn't bad. But then, you know, you heard your friend's tape, and the only way you had to get a copy of it was to tape the copy of the tape. And that's great. You got the songs you wanted. But, you know, the, the quality started to move, you know, was, was not quite the quality that the original mixtape had. Then another friend wants to tape your tape, because, of course, the songs are awesome and you're cool. Uh, so, so they make a tape of your tape. But eventually, you know, the, the tape that's been, you know, two, three, four times removed from the original ends up, you know, starting to sound really weird. Okay? Now, you'd be surprised, especially if you didn't grow up in the 80s, what kids in the 80s would put up with listening to in order to say, look, I have these songs. Right? But it's distanced from the original. And that's a major problem in our world. It's a problem in our church, in the Christian church, that we don't tie ourselves closely enough to God's love. We're concerned about our belief. We're concerned that we're all on the same page with belief with doctrine, and that is important. That is not disconnected from love. But we need to be tied into God. We need to let his spirit shape us. We need to pray that God searches our hearts and shows us our unloving ways because sometimes we just don't see them. Sometimes I just don't recognize how unloving I am, how disconnected I am. I, I do a, uh, a conference call with, uh, with a few friends that uh, we all went to college together. It's different points. We've all pastored in different capacities. A couple of them are pastors now. A couple of, uh, of us are in, more in academics. But in that call, one of my friends uh, asked us the question. He said, so how's it going with God? And, and when he asked it, I realized, well, there's kind of two ways I can answer this. One is how I feel right now, which maybe isn't so hot. Right? The other is I can rattle off the disciplines I've done. Well, I read my Bible today and yesterday, or I know where my Bible is. Uh, right? or, or I can talk about you know, how frequently I go to church, which, frankly, they would just right away go, wait a second, you're giving us an attendance record? Uh, right? but, but his question is one that we may ask or we may think. Right? So how, how's it going? And we think of how we feel and we think of what we've done. Eugene Peterson talked about the real mark of spirituality is found in this question. What do you like to live with? Right? If you want to get to the real heart of your spirituality, what do you like to live with? Okay? Now, he wasn't just saying that because you know, things were going rough in his home and he wanted to really you know, dig and, and push. Uh, he's saying that because he saw love as this foundation of spirituality. He's taking seriously the passages we find in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, where in 1 Corinthians 12, we talk about spiritual gifts, and then Paul says, but let me show you the most excellent way. And then what does he do? He lists off a bunch of ordinary things about love, a bunch of mundane and daily things about love. Here's the most excellent way, and it has to do with love and the love that you share with one another. Okay? But we can't love well or live well without knowing the source of love, without being rooted and grounded in the source of love. God is the measure of our love. 
Uh, this next uh, slide is, is just a, uh, a picture of the measurement standards erected at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich, uh, London, uh, in the 19th century. And here it's just showing you, well, here's, here's what two feet is under you know, ideal uh, weather circumstances. Uh, here's what two feet is. Uh, a yard is, is blocked a little bit. Uh, there's a measurement for two inches. But for us to understand those measurements, there has to be a standard. They have to actually mean something. When you say something is, is a foot, it has to mean something. It has to, there has to actually be a measurement of a foot that we can measure it against. When we say God is the source of love, okay, it too has to mean something. And I think a big part of it is as Christians, as the body of Christ, it's recognizing that justice matters, just as the prophet says. He's shown you, immortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy. I think we live in a world that loves those words. And we function in churches where we love those words, justice, mercy. We want to talk about those things. But we also need to walk humbly with our God. We need to make sure that I'm not just defining love and justice on my own terms. Or that I'm not just uh, you know, assuming some notion of love and justice that I've heard that makes sense, that sounds right. I need to make sure that my idea of love and justice is rooted in God and that I can be shaped by him. That I walk humbly with him so that he can correct the injustice of my life and the lack of love. Or more specifically, the absolute fullness of my love for myself, because I can't get over myself. Right? One thing I'm great at is loving me. But I need to be tapped into God. I need to trust him. And I need to do that in a world that thinks God's love is old-fashioned, is outdated, is horrific. I need to live God's love and understand God's love in a world that's hostile to it. And so this brings us to the fourth point. And this is the point that really uh, should tie us back into communion. And that is that Jesus is the expression of God's love and the measure by which our love is judged. Verse John 4, uh, sorry, verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Verse 10, This is love. This is agape. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you're not certain what love is, look to the cross. Look to what God has done through us, for us, through Christ. Read the Old Testament, understanding that it is all pointing ahead to Christ, and that God's love is alive and rich throughout it. Romans 5, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'll invite the guys to, to come back up uh, to uh, prepare for uh, worship and communion. I just want to end with a couple of comments. One is that we see throughout all of Scripture God expressing his love for creation, his love for human beings. 
Sometimes we might even refer to the Bible as God's love story, right? Or as God saying to us, I love you. The next part of the Ephesians passage I read to you brings some of this richness to life. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Here's this really full and rich statement of what God has done, what God has been doing, what God is doing. And all of this is flowing out of his love. And too often, our response to that is, yeah, I believe it. Or, God, I believe you. We don't recognize what God is doing, who God is. Uh, when Tanya and I were getting ready to, uh, to get engaged, uh, I had this little elaborate plan. It wasn't terribly elaborate, but uh, it was a surprise to her because we'd only been dating like two weeks. Uh, no, it, it was a little longer than that. Uh, right? But, but I, I had this uh, plan. I told her I found some money, and I asked her this question of what would she do if she found $500? I hadn't found $500, but I said I had. Uh, and so she right away said she'd pay off some debts. I was like, well, you are romantic. Okay. Uh, and then, uh, you know, she went back with me. I said, oh, I'd, I'd probably buy a snowboard or something. Uh, so then I, I upped it and I said, well, what if it was like a couple of thousand dollars? What would you do? And then she started talking a little broader about trips to Australia and things. And she said, she played right into my hands, well, what would you do? And I said, oh, I'd buy a ring and ask you to marry me. And, uh, oh, I know. Uh, <laughs> right? So then I got down on one knee and, and asked her. Uh, and the first thing she said to me is, did you pray about this? <laughs> I said, well, we're kind of past that point now. Uh, right? But, you know, I was looking for a certain response. It was, you know, it was my big, I love you. I'm putting this all in the line. And I was looking for a response of, I love you too. I got the response, by the way. Right? When we look at God's story, okay, there is a responsibility we have to the first lover, to the one who is love. And it's not simply to say, I believe you. Belief matters. Doctrine matters. But what matters at the root and the foundation of what God is doing in our lives is that we respond to him in love. That we recognize him as love and respond in that way. So when we talk about the moral of God's story, uh, we're going to move into this next week to talk a bit more about the relationship between our love for God and our love for neighbors. Uh, and I'm going to leave First uh, John 4, verse 20. It's a bit more of the negative side. We'll leave that for a discussion next week. I want to end with First uh, John 4, verse 11, the top verse. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we, all to, uh, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. As we transition into communion, here is an ordinary, actually an ordinary way that we gather as church, that we witness to our oneness before God. Here's a chance for us to reflect on what he's done for us. And it's a chance for us in love with one another to express our love to God. I love the way John puts this. 
No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, he lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Communion is, I think, one of the primary evangelistic tools that we have. Here's the place for us to gather and demonstrate God's love. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being love, for guiding us and leading us in love. Uh, And Lord, we pray you would gather us now in unity, in oneness. Help us to reflect on the love that is expressed to us in Christ. Lord, guide us in communion to share that love and to express that love to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.